reading the familiar passage when the Lord Jesus meets the Samaritan by the well. John chapter 4, we'll be reading verses 1 through 26. John 4, beginning in verse 1, all the way to 26. Hear God's true and eternal word. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldst have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus saith unto her, Go, call thy husband and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said. I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband, in that sayest thou truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh, When ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father, ye worship ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, 
I that speak unto thee am he. Thus far, and may God bless I invite you again to open God's word to John chapter 4. We hope to consider especially verses 13 and 14, which Jesus gives in answer to the woman's question that he had nothing to draw water with. The Lord Jesus in verse 13 says, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. That is the theme before us. Everlasting life. Eternity. And as simple as the concept of life seems to be, there is ongoing debate in the scientific world, and even in the philosophical world, as to what exactly defines life. Um, If you are to read an article in the Encyclopedia Britannica, it has this declaration. It says, Although scientists, technicians, and others who participate in studies of life, easily distinguishing living matter from their dead matter, from inert or dead matter, None can give a completely inclusive, concise definition of life itself. And they go on to explain that this is due to the properties of life, like growth, change, reproduction, etc. Because all these properties involve, they say, transformation or the capacity of transformation. And here's a little example that is given. You might find a seed and you know that it's a hundred or so years old. And you may conclude that it's dead. But then it's planted, water is given, and it sprouts. And so this is their confusion. Did it have life before when it looked like it was inert? Did life come upon that seed when these other things were added? See, it's amazing to see that as basic as the concept of life is, not everyone agrees, even about what it means. But then there is also some conversations regarding the meaning of life. That that becomes um, even more confusing because it it, it goes into the psychological, the, the philosophical aspect of life. And when you read from them and what they have to say, there's, there's one article in the Journal of Positive Psychology, and they say that they're philosophers and researchers, see researchers who do put together that there are two main areas that they consider when they're thinking of meaning of life. They call it coherence and purpose. Coherence has to do with a sense of comprehensibility or like one's life making sense. They're, they're wondering in what way does life make sense or not. And then the purpose has to do with, with the goals, the aims, and the direction in life. But then there are some philosophers who say, but wait, there's, there's one more thing to consider. There's the aspect of significance. 
And that's becoming more and more one of the three things that they're considering. And significance has to do with life's inerrant value, having a life that's worth living. But even as there are those all discussing what coherence means, purpose, and what's the significance of life, you know that there are also those in that camp of philosophers and psychologists who even deny any meaning of life whatsoever. They give no credence to sense of life, to direction of life, or to value of life. So that's, that's the scenario out there. But when we come in here and we look at God's Word, thankfully, we have in God's Word clear definitions as to what life is. And also, not just that, we are also taught how to have this life. We, we are not left into a, a philosophical nebula as to how you can even obtain this life. No, we're told how to have this life, and we're told what this life is. And before you were to say, well, yes, but the Bible only discusses spiritual life. See, that's already a problem when somebody thinks that that's, but that's an exception. Because, see, the whole problem, there's all that confusion, is because they don't understand that life is not only physical, it's also spiritual. Because when we think of humans, we are not a body separate from a soul, two things and unrelated. We are body and soul intricately connected so that the physical life of the body is intricately connected to the spiritual life of the soul. And this is why God's Word, we, we read it not too long ago, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, speaking to people who are physically alive, that if they do not have Christ, they are spiritually dead. But then that deadness, of course, affects their physical life because it makes them choose things and do actions that literally can bring death to their very physical bodies. Because remember what it said, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. But that wasn't just a spiritual reality. It says, We walked in this death according to this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. And it goes on, Among whom also we all had our conversations, behavior, in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So you see, when, when you are spiritually dead, you can very quickly become physically dead as well. And even if you're not physically dead, you're hanging on, but those choices that are utterly bad and sinful will bring a cloud of depression upon the soul where you look at it and say, this isn't life. And it's true. Life lived without Christ is not life. In the biblical sense of life. So this is why our first point will be life now. And it's still under the banner of eternal life. So this is what I want to communicate with this message, is that when you have life, it already is eternal, even while you're on this side of heaven. We do speak of that side of the world, and, and we speak of it as eternity, but we need to understand and grasp that eternity begins now. And either you are with, you, you see, you, you have an eternity, whether you, you understand it or not, whether you're saved or not, your soul will live forever. Period. 
Because when I spoke of humans having a body and a soul, those are believers and unbelievers have bodies and souls. And if you're an unbeliever, your soul will never, ever, ever die. And if you never come to Christ, if you never receive this water that Christ is saying, if you, if you knew who is asking, you would ask of me of this water. And He says, I would give you this living water. If you never ask this living water, if you never trust in the Lord Jesus, then this eternal soul that you have that will never die will be in an eternal dying condition. That's condemnation. See, there's even a reality of eternity to hell. But of course, you don't call it life. It is spoken of as eternal death, a continuous dying. So this is why this is very important to know, this life now, because not all of us have life in this world. There are those who are still walking in their sins, then let me, let me bring this other um, principle. This is already our first point, but I'm still in the introduction of our first point, why this is important. We'll, we'll look at the definition of life as God's Word gives it. But let me bring a little illustration that, that can be applied to the reality of life. There are people who are dying, even this very moment, without Jesus. Are we concerned about the state of their soul and where they will pass eternity. There's the example of this minister um, in Ireland in in the days of old um, who was told to visit a family who lived in, in a wild district of Ireland. And after a whole hour walking through marshy trails and hills and valleys, he came upon this hut and... And he saw a, a, a lady sitting upon a stool who, as it was the custom of the day, she readily gave her stool to, to the visitor. They, they had asked the pastor to visit because this family had a son who was dying. who was around 17 to 18 years of age with tuberculosis. But as he arrived there and, and saw that there was this form lying upon a stack of hay, he just felt, well, that's probably the, the, the troubled person that I need to meet. So he went to him. He was lying down, sleeping. But with the notion of the pastor there, a little bit of the noise, he opened his eyes and was somewhat startled. He was evidently troubled. He was exhausted. He was in his last days dying of tuberculosis. And this pastor had in his heart what would be in your heart as well, this, this great commotion and thinking, what do I say? How can I relate to him? And as he began asking a few questions, he could understand he had absolutely hardly any, uh, no understanding of religion. He was raised basically as a pagan with just those general notions that there was a God somewhere. And he began feeling so burdened. How will I evangelize this soul? He's about to enter eternity. So while he ministered, he prayed, and he asked the Lord to give an opening, to give an understanding. What shall I share? And, and he had the thought of asking my, my son, how, how do you think you got this awful cold that you had? He had mentioned that he had a bad cold, and it developed into this. And he said, how, how did it start? And he said, well, it was about a year ago, even around this very season. My father sent me to go look for one of the lost sheep. 
And it was a blustery, wintry night. And I just went to where I thought maybe the sheep was. And I went through snow. And it was cold and shivering. And I finally found it. And, and, and he went asking questions. He said, how did you bring her back? It was probably so hard to get there. How did you bring her back? And he said, well, I, I didn't trust her back on the path. I was afraid it would scatter somewhere else. So I put it over my shoulder and came on tumbling all the way back home. By the time I arrived, it was, it was morning. And, and the pastor said, and, and your father must have been so happy to see you when you were back. He said, oh, yes, he was. And as it is the custom around here when these things happen, even the neighbors came by to receive me and to be thankful that one lost sheep was found. And so even as he concluded his little story, the pastor was already thanking the Lord that he felt that he had the gospel right before him. And so he began ministering to that little boy, telling him that what he had lived was, in a sense, one of the parables in the Bible. So he read John 10 to the young boy and told him how Jesus called himself the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. And, and that little boy understood, that, that 17-year-old boy understood that, that he had acted like the good shepherd. He, in essence, had given his life for the sheep. The sheep came back alive and he was now about to die. And, and he shared the gospel to that young boy. And by the end of it all, he had commended his soul to Jesus he had trusted the good shepherd. He was about to die, but he was now alive. But where would he be had he not heard about the good shepherd? And see, dear young man and dear young woman and boys and girls and whatever soul would be within this hearing, when you're not sick, maybe you're not troubled. But if you're lost, you should be troubled. Because you need to drink from this same water that Jesus offered this woman. And we will hear today what it means to have Jesus give you this water. What is this living water? How do you receive it? So, so what is eternal life? And, and, and again... I. I'm not here speaking primarily of, of physical life. There's, there's the biology to it. There's the reality of cells that are working and blood that is pumping. But I, I don't want you to think that what we're speaking of is unrelated because we already put this into the, in the introduction. If, if you may have your, your, your health and you look like you have life, but if you don't have the spiritual life, that, that is not counting as biblical life ultimately. And even the world, this is why they look at certain people and they say that's not a life or they'll say this is not a worth a life living a life living a life worth to be living why do they say that it's always if Jesus is lacking they might not understand that it's Jesus but they know something drastic is lacking and we know it's Christ because if you have him then you have your worth, you have your value, you have eternity, you have everything. And you will have life even if there is turmoil, even if there are difficulties. Difficulties don't make it where there is no life. It's not having Christ that makes it where there is no life. And so what is eternal life? What, what is the fullness of life as God's word gives it? And we're going to look at several 
several points here. One of them is this. Eternal life is composed of that which is unseen. Unseen. 2 Corinthians 4.18 While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal. Or you could say, their life is not eternal. It is a temporary life. And that does not qualify as life in a full sense because one day it won't be anymore. But the things which are not seen are eternal. And the prime example here is your soul. Your soul is unseen and yet it is eternal. The soul of believers and unbelievers, they had a beginning but they'll never have an end. So eternal life is composed of that which is unseen. Secondly, we could say eternal life is in existence without suffering. Not now, but in the future. Eternal life, we could even say, is glorious. Revelation 21.3 brings us to an eternal life in the future. In heaven, and look at what it says. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, the presence of God, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Now you might say, isn't, isn't that for our second point, life forever? In essence, it is. But the reason I want to bring it here now, it's because I want to emphasize that the life of heaven that is eternal, and precisely as we have read, without suffering, should affect your life now. Romans eight eighteen, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time, because... Right now there is death, there is sorrow, there are tears, they're not being wiped out. But these sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. You see, what Paul is saying is he's saying what will happen in heaven and revelation reveals should be used by the believer now to help you live the days of turmoil here. They have a use. Before your tears are dried... Just the very thought that they will be should bring a smile to your face today. And if you're having to shed tears, be comforted that one day they will be dried. See, when you think of the soul that doesn't have Christ, part of their death that they are living is the thought, where is the purpose? I am crying and I am crying and I am crying. Will there ever be a, a day where I will cry no longer? They're, they're sorry or sad because someone died or because of their physical condition. They're probably themselves dying and they can't stop crying because there's a fear of what lies ahead. They don't know Revelation 21.3. They haven't heard Jesus say to them, Ask of me and I will give you living water. So you see, because they don't have eternal life, they're not living life even now. But when you have eternal life and you know that your eyes will have no more tears, even when you cry now, those tears won't be as salty. They'll be sweeter. 
Because you're even saying that the sufferings that I have now are nothing to be compared with the glory of later. So eternal life is an existence without suffering and affects your life today, now. Number three, eternal life is to know God and Jesus. This this is what I believe to be the Bible's most direct definition of life. John 17, 3, Jesus himself says it. And this is life eternal. You can't have it more clear than this. You can't have it more grammatically direct that Jesus will give a definition of what eternal life is. So you hang at that word and He says, that they might know Thee. He's praying to the Father. This is John 17, the the high priestly prayer. He says that they might know Thee, Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom Thou hast sent. So if somebody ever asks you, what is eternal life? Well, it's to know God and to know Jesus. Who says so? You say, Jesus. He says this in John 17, 3 in his prayer. He's talking to the Father. And as he prays audibly, he's teaching us, of course, that this is what eternal life is. It is is based on that which is unseen. It is that which will have no suffering. It is to know God and Jesus. I could bring some other verses, but it's amazing how intricately connected they are with our next point. And I'll just... Go on to the next, not not the next point, but the next point under life now is how do you obtain life? I said that the Bible doesn't just teach you and me what life is. It also says how to have it. It's very practical. God's word is not just putting before you beautiful things and just leaving you there desiring them. No, it it does say how to have it. Jesus told this woman that, that if she were to ask of him for water, he would give eternal life. He doesn't just place eternal life before her. He says how to have it. This is what the Bible does, not just here, Jesus, to this lady, but elsewhere. So first of all, eternal life is something Jesus gives, plainly and clearly. Um, I will go back to John 4, which I just read, but let me read John 10, 28, where Jesus is speaking of himself being the shepherd that he gave his life for the sheep. He he says this, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. See, Jesus has just finished saying in what we're studying, that life is to know God and Christ. And then Christ is saying, And I give it. That's how straightforward God's word is. Think of what Jesus is declaring. I give unto them eternal life. I, the person of Jesus is saying, I give eternal life to my sheep. He's not speaking of making your life better. He's not speaking of giving you health merely. He's not speaking of performing some kind of surgery that will now give you a means of living life longer. Doctors are able to do that. He's speaking of eternal life. And this is why John was able to say this in 1 John 5.11, And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. So we we find um, Jesus saying that He gives life. John is saying that the Father gives life. Because, of course, if, if Jesus is life and God gave Jesus, well, then God gave life. And that's the second thing. Eternal life is a gift of God. Um. 
Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Again, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the Bible doesn't make a mystery here. Jesus says, you will know, life is to know God the Father and Jesus. And then Jesus says, I give life. The Father says, I give Jesus. And that means He gives life. So we don't go looking for life anywhere else. It's in God. But as much as we hear of life as a gift, a third thing to consider is that eternal life must be found. Proverbs 8.35, For whoso findeth me, this is wisdom speaking, and it's saying, If you find me, you find life, and shall obtain favor of the Lord. And this, of course, speaks then of the need that you and I aren't to just sit waiting for this life to happen. We must have this sense of urgency, this sense of seeking, a sense of of. of earnestly desiring. It's even what Jesus is giving this woman. He, he asks her for water only to start the conversation that she should ask him for water. And of course, he is implying with this, go ahead, ask me for this water. And this immediately puts the woman in the position of saying, please give me this living water. You see what Jesus is doing? He is wooing her to ask the right question. And beloved, don't, don't think of this as only a 2,000-year-old illustration. This is for now, for your soul, that you would look to the living Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, I do believe Thou art the Christ. Give me this living water. And thankfully, it's not from that well of Jacob. It's, I don't need to go to Jerusalem for it or, or, or Israel for it, Samaria. I can go to the throne of God by faith. Give me this living water. If you said you would give it to her, Lord, give it to me because I need to live. I cannot die. Without you, I die. See, it's that dependence that we spoke of this morning. Fourthly, so eternal life is something Jesus gives. Eternal life is the gift of God. Eternal life must be found. It must be sought after. It must be pursued. Fourthly, eternal life comes by way of doing God's will. The way you and I pursue it is simply by means of, of obedience. But it's not, of course, to say that as you obey, He, he pays you with life. We understand it's not that. But it still means that you don't sit and wait. And you must yearn for it. Why do I say it comes by way of doing God's will? 1 John 2.17 And the world passes away, and the lust thereof, the desires of the world, go away. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. See, it's speaking more in terms of if you are one who wants to obey and you're living in that way by the grace of God, that becomes a sign that you have this eternal life. Eternal life is connected to obedience. It's connected with sanctification. We will see this shortly. Fifthly, a fifth thing to say about this eternal life, whoever drinks the water that Jesus gives, so we're looking right at our text, John 4, will have this life. The water that I shall give him, verse 14 of John 4, shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. 
Some believe Jesus was here very specifically speaking of the Holy Spirit himself, that he will give you the Spirit, and the Spirit, of course, will quicken you and give you life. And then sixthly and lastly, we can still say that eternal life is received, and this is what the gospel always ends with, is received by trusting in Jesus. It is by faith. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. It is by faith. God's word is is very clear. Verse 36 of John 3. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abideth on him. So very clearly, it's faith. Faith in Christ. Now this is life now. Let me go on to life forever. And and. Here, in a sense, yes, we're breaking the threshold of this world and entering, as it were, heaven, but it doesn't mean that we we left the world. Because even in this point, I want you to understand that this life forever for the believer is now. This life now is for us to understand. For me to have life now, I need to have eternal life. And now that I know I have eternal life, I can begin living that life and experiencing that life and being thankful for that life also now and forever. This is what Jesus was promising to give this woman. It'll bring and give everlasting life. Think of a a woman who, who was full of her burdens and full of her sins. You've probably heard sermons that says she was coming at this hour because very likely it was a time that wouldn't be too many people. She was avoiding people because of the life she was living. She had to go there, get water all the time. And Jesus is now promising living waters and a water that will make her have everlasting life. And she's yearning for that water, but she's thinking into the physical side and she's thinking it will be wonderful to have this water. I'll never have to come here to draw. And then the Lord Jesus wants to show to her what kind of water she needs. She needs a water of cleansing. She needs a water that will forgive her because he's offering eternal life. And so he brings the subject of her husband that makes her confess she's not with a husband. And the Lord Jesus reveals that he knows that she's had several relationships and the one she's with now is not her husband. And this convicts her heart. And when she goes back, you know the story that she goes back to Samaria and and it doesn't trouble her that she knows all these things. She's just thinking the reality that he's the Christ and he told me he is and he knows all things about me. It's very likely he is the Christ. So she tells all those people and when we know the continuation, many Samaritans come and they hear the Lord Jesus to the point where they say, we now believe because we have heard him. So they went there because they heard her. Then they heard Jesus and they also believed. So this woman was made by the Lord Jesus. In the, in the moment that she believes in Christ, she invites people to go hear Christ. She becomes an evangelist of the Samaritans. And she has life. 
Let me read several verses. And in all of these verses, what, what, what I want to do right now is come up with a very simple summary of what that life that is eternal can be lived now in two words. I really do believe that all of these virtues, all of these descriptions of what life is can be summarized into two headings that can make us be able to understand this better. In John 15, 11, these are all promises that Jesus gave that are all about life. John 15, 11 says, These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. A lot of people would feel they're not living a good life because joy is missing. And here Christ is promising joy to the full. John 16, 24. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask, and ye shall receive, that your joy may be full. Jesus seems to emphasize um, this theme. And, and the apostles pick up on this in 1 John 1, 4. John says, And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. John speaks just like Jesus. Before Jesus goes to Calvary in, in that um, discourse in the upper room, in John 14, 27, he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Many people would describe that their life is meaningless because they don't have peace. But Jesus promises peace. In that same discourse, John 14, 16, Jesus says, And I will pray the Father, and He shall give you another Comforter, that He may abide with you forever. We know this is the Holy Spirit. He's promising God to His people to dwell in us. That's the Holy Spirit. John 17, 22, Jesus says, And the glory which Thou gavest Me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. He promises a unity. He promises a bond. Believers with believers. Christ as the head and the body of Christ, the church, all with a togetherness. He emphasizes that again in verse 23 of John 17. I in them and thou in me, that they may be perfect in one and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Beloved, a lot of people say they don't experience life because they're alone. There's an epidemic, they say, of loneliness. What does God's Word say about the Christian life? It is full of joy, full of peace. We have the Holy Spirit. We have this unity. I in them. How can I be alone if Jesus is in me? And we are together as a body. And then just remembering one verse in that same prayer, remember Jesus said, Sanctify them in thy truth. Thy word is truth. And when you put all these words together, joy, peace, the Holy Spirit's work, sanctification, you have these two words. And, and I want to submit to you that this is what life is, lived now, and it will be forever. Happiness and holiness. And all of the virtues come under those two headings. Happiness and joy and peace and unity. When we're together as a church, don't you feel happy? When you have peace in your heart, aren't you happy? 
And I'm using the word happy in its most biblical sense of blessedness. Blessedness means happiness, joy. When your heart is full of gratitude, it's because you're so happy. You need to let other people know. So whoever did that one sweet thing to you, you say thank you to them. And it's your happiness that leads you to say thank you. And then under holiness, in essence, is every other virtue. It's, it's right there. And that's sanctification. That's the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine the Holy Spirit was left to you, but we won't be holy as He is? Happiness and holiness. And they're so intricately connected. The, the holier you are, the happier you will be. And the happier you are in a true biblical sense, the more holy you will desire to be. And I want to give you an example of this Christian happiness that is part of eternal life. And I was reading about um, Charles Wesley when he wrote the hymn, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing, a very well-known hymn. Um, and our first stanza that we sing, which is perhaps the most well-known portion, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. But what is not commonly known is that this is not stanza number one. This is stanza number seven. And that this whole hymn has 18 stanzas in all. Because when Charles Wesley wrote this, he wrote this as a gratitude to the Lord, as a testimony of his conversion. He was so thankful that God saved his soul that he wanted to memorize that. He wanted it to be a hymn for everyone else who wanted to thank the Lord for their conversion. And so there are 18 stanzas. And the first stanza is a general doxology. And then stanza two to to stanza six is the account of his conversion and the assurance that God gave him of his faith. And then he breaks into, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. And there's really just one word that comes to my mind. He was so joyful that God had saved him. And he had so much to say that he had to put it into 18 stanzas. And when we know this, it makes us want to go find us and and, and read all the other stanzas. The very next one, after, oh, a thousand tongues to sing, oh, four, a thousand. He says, my gracious master and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad the honors of thy name. Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrow cease. Tis music in the sinner's ears, tis life and health and peace. He was so full of joy. If you're a Christian and you have no joy, one of the most important ingredients of life is missing. Now remember, beloved, I've said this before, joy doesn't mean you're, 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 you're up and, and, and leaping and smiling. And Joy is inside and you can even be crying, but you have the joy of the Lord. And you can weep with those who weep while you have the joy of the Lord. But for those who might be in a despondency their whole Christian life, from one sadness to the next, discontent, never things go right, you feel the whole world is against you. Either 
there's a backsliding of the soul or there's an immaturity of the soul or there could even be a lack of salvation for the soul. But may, may the Lord help that if you are in that situation, you would say, Lord, I want to be like that woman. You told her you would give that water. I need that water too. And if I've already drunk it because I've already been saved, well then renew the joy of my salvation. Read Psalm 51. And that's what David pleads for. It could be when, when, when you do sin, a certain sin, God will take away the joy because that's part of the discipline, because He loves you. He doesn't want you to be happy in sin. And so He takes the happiness away so that you realize that sin is not good. It's God being good. And so may the Lord help as you examine this. But let me give you now an example of holiness. And, and this is under the banner of, of life forever. You begin this joy now, and in heaven it will be forever too. And, and I'm reminded to go back just to read that second question in Lord's Day 22. It is precious to see that this is precisely um, one of the words that they use to describe everlasting life. Page 51 again, question 58. What comfort takest thou from the article life everlasting that since I now feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy? We feel this joy that we have is part of eternity. It's, it's, it's only going to grow when you get to heaven, but it's already that eternal joy. After this life, I shall inherit perfect salvation, which I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man to conceive, and that to the praise of God therein forever. Can you imagine if you can start with joy now, and then there's all the blessedness of what we will see in heaven that joy, there, there are no words to describe how much bigger that joy can be, but it's emphatic to think that that joy begins now. And then holiness we spoke of. And let me just give you the example of holiness. And I need to come here, of course, immediately to Christ. He is the supreme example of both happiness and holiness. There's none who's ever walked upon this earth who had more pure joy and pure sanctification. Jesus was perfectly pure. He never had one ounce of discontentment. He never had one ounce of worry in the sinful way. He was concerned, but he was never worried. He, he never had fear in a sinful way. He, he was afraid, but he never crossed the line into sinful fear. Jesus never lied. He never stole. He never hated in a sinful way. He had righteous anger. But what's emphatic, beloved, at this holiest of beings, Hebrews 7.26 says that he is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who obviously must have had the most pure sense of joy and happiness. For you to become happy and holy. He needed to become the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And on the cross, he, the Father made him to become sin 
for us. Have you put this together, beloved? It's, it's, it's the same doctrine. It's the doctrine of justification, of substitution. I just finished telling you that eternal life is happiness and holiness now and forever. And on the cross, for you to have that happiness and holiness, Jesus had to be the man of sorrows. There is no soul who became more sorrowful and more sad and who wept more tears of great, great sadness to the point where his sweat was great drops of blood. He was weeping, as it were, through his pores. And on the cross, the Father placed on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus was seen by the Father as the greatest sinner this earth has ever seen. Every other person who's not looked to Jesus and therefore is in that eternal hell, they are suffering for their sins separately. Jesus on the cross suffered for the sins of all his people, thousands and millions and millions. All to give you happiness and to give you holiness. That's why Jesus is the giver of life. Have you listened to what he said? Have you asked him for this life? And if you haven't, why? Because listen again what he says to that lady. If thou knewest the gift of God and who it is that saith to thee, give me to drink, thou would have asked of him. And he would have given thee living water. Beloved, if you ask Jesus for this water, He will not turn you away. And He will give you to drink. And you will have this life. You will have this happiness and this holiness now. And yes, now, it will have the challenges. We'll always be at war, battles. But eternity, this happiness and holiness will be like His. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious and glorious God, how we thank Thee for the Lord Jesus, that He truly is this suffering Savior for our sins. Lord, we pray that, that Thou would quicken the hearts of any among us, Lord, who are lost in their sins. Lord, Thou knowest, Thou knowest the innermost thoughts of every heart. And Lord, who of us would not say that we need more of Christ, that we need to be more like Him, that we need this happiness, we need this holiness, and we come again to Christ, Lord, either, either for the first time or in a continuous way, Lord. We never graduate from Jesus. And so, Lord, may everyone in this room and within the hearing of this sermon be as those who stand and kneel in essence, at the very foot of the cross and say, Lord Jesus, give me of this water to drink. I need more of Christ. Forgive us, Lord, of our sins. Cleanse us and pardon us. And may we have this eternal life now and forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.